Good morning. Um, it is good to be here. My name is Joe Johnson. If you don't know me, if I haven't met you yet, I am not a pastor here at this church, but I am a pastor who goes to this church. I am the uh, RUF campus minister at Birmingham Southern, which means I'm your pastor to that campus. And my wife and I and our kids have been here for about a year worshiping at Red Mountain. We love this church. We love you. And if you're new here, I would love to meet you and uh, help you in any way that I can. I'll be by that back door uh, when we're through uh, with our service. Uh, we are jumping back into a series that we've been in for a long time. We're looking at the book of Romans again. And for a while, we were looking at both Genesis and Romans, sort of going back and forth between the two. In the last few weeks, Matt took us through a vision series for the church. And now we're just going to be in Romans for a little while. And we're plopping back in in Romans chapter 12, which is in your bulletin, and just the first two verses. Uh, this is actually a great place to get back into this book uh, because Paul's letter to the church in Rome is, is the fullest explanation of the gospel that he gives and we have in the New Testament. And it's actually sort of divided in two parts. Uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans is Paul explaining what the gospel is, unpacking what Jesus has done for his people, that he's taken our sins upon himself and clothed us in a righteousness that is not our own, it's his. And because of that, we're adopted as sons and daughters of God. We get to call him Abba. Father, And he unpacks that for 11 chapters. But then in chapter 12, the, the, the hinge turns. And in chapter 12, he begins to apply the gospel to our life. And it's really what he does for the rest of the book. Going from gospel explained to gospel exhortation. What does this mean about our life here and now? And the first two verses of Romans 12 are really the summary of the rest of the book. The overarching statement of how does the gospel change us? So, with that, let me read our passage This morning, Romans 12, and just the first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, as we look at your word together, um, uh, we don't deserve to be here, and we don't deserve your word, but we are your people in the name of Jesus, and we come, and you graciously reveal yourself to us. And so as we look at this, as we think about our life, help us to see Jesus clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There has been a major uh, power shift uh, and change of dynamic in my house. Uh, lately, and it's changed everything about the house. It's changed the feel of the house, the culture of the house, the vibe of the house. And it's because one of my children learned one word, and that word is Alexa. <laughs> it is how we listen to all of our music. We have Amazon Music, and we love having music in the house. My wife and I always wanted a house that always has music, whether it's sort of dance party music or worship music or the Beatles or whatever else in between. We love having music on. But now, I will walk into the kitchen where Alexa is, and I'll say, Alexa, play the Beatles. I will walk out of the room. I will come back three minutes later, and 110% of the time, it is playing the Frozen soundtrack. (laughs) It is all we listen to. I start with that because I'm about to give an illustration from the Frozen soundtrack, and I wanted you to know why. (laughs) Because this is where I am in life. I don't want to do this, but this is just where we are. There is a song on the Frozen soundtrack uh, called Fixer Upper. It's not one of the big ones, 
later on in the movie. Um, and it's a song uh, that is about trying to get two people together, saying he's a bit of a fixer-upper, but that's okay. Um, and the song has always kind of stuck out to me, not just because I have to listen to it four times a day, um, but because it says something, I think, pretty strange about the way people change. And just I'm going to read the lyrics. This is kind of weird, but go with me here. This is the bridge of the song. We're not saying you can change him, because uh, people don't really change. We're only saying that love's a force that's powerful and strange. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. Throw a little love their way, and you'll bring out their best. True love brings out their best. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper. That's what it's all about. Father, sister, brother, we need each other to raise us up and round us out. Everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper, but when push comes to shove, the only fixer-upper fixer is true love. Amen. Go in peace, right? The weird thing about that song, and there's a lot of good about it, I'm not correcting the theology of Frozen, but I've always been struck by that line, people don't really change, but if you love them, the best might come out. And I sort of wonder, that's, that's kind of a cynical attitude about change, I sort of wonder if we think of Christianity like that, that like deep heart change probably isn't possible, like people don't really change, but it might bring out your best. If you're anything like me, one of the most discouraging things about faith and maybe about your Christian life is when you look at your heart and look at your life, you're kind of constantly disappointed at the amount of change that you see. I actually heard John Piper say one time that that the thing that brings him the most doubt in his Christian life is not some philosophical issue against the existence of God, and it's not some evil or suffering that comes into his life, but the thing that makes him doubt Christianity the most is his lack of sanctification, the lack of holiness that he sees in his life. And I actually kind of wonder if all of us are in that boat together. Um, That maybe you've had sin in your life since you were like a teenager. And you thought at this point in your Christian life, that should be done by now, and it's not. And you're still struggling with the same stuff. Or maybe you have an anger problem. All of us have an anger problem. And you really thought at this point it would be getting better, but actually if you look at your life, it feels like it's getting worse. Or maybe the thing that all of us struggle with is some degree anxiety. That though you have read that verse a thousand times about how Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, you still worry about tomorrow. And anxiety is overwhelming and it almost feels like it's getting worse. That can be one of the most discouraging things about the Christian life. Why have I not changed more? Maybe it will never come. Well, I hope we are encouraged this morning by Paul's two verses in Romans 12 that tell us what gospel change really looks like. That the gospel that saves us, that rescues us from our sin, is also the gospel that transforms us into new beings, new creations, for His glory. But that gospel change looks different than we expect. It's still there. It's still happening. It's just different. It's deeper, and it's slower. So what does gospel change look like? Three things from our text today. Gospel change is all about grace, first of all. It's all about grace. Secondly, it encompasses all of our life. And third, it is a deep and slow process. Gospel change is all about grace and encompasses all of life, and it's a deep and slow process. So first, it's all about grace. So these are two transitional verses. This is Paul going from the first half of Romans to the second half, kind of book one to book two. 
And he connects the two. Because it's not as if he's saying, look, okay, now we got what Jesus has done. Now let's talk about the mess of your life and how you need to clean it up. No, he actually roots all the imperatives that are coming. And there's a lot of imperatives coming. He roots it all in the indicatives that he's already given. He roots it all in what Jesus has already done. And we know that because of the word, therefore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's a very technical seminary talk here. But sometimes uh, a professor would say in seminary, whenever you see the word, therefore, in a text, you have to ask what it's there for. It's like one year of seminary. I just gave it to you for free. What Paul's doing here is he's rooting what he's saying next and what he's just talked about for 11 chapters, which is the glory of the grace of God. That we have been rescued from our sin, not because of what we've done. That Jesus has taken all of our sin upon himself and he's gone in our place at the altar of God to be a propitiation for our sin, a wrath quencher. He takes God's wrath for us and clothes us in his righteousness and presents us as faultless before God And that's never going away. But if we are in Christ, we are in Christ forever. We can never lose that love. This glory that he unpacks for 11 chapters, he's saying, since that is true, then this has to be true about your life. You are different. And living in light of that grace changes you. But he doesn't just stop at one word. He doesn't just say, therefore, and moves on. But he does this little prepositional phrase that I absolutely love and I want to camp out on for a second. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I love that he puts that in there because really, if you think about it, he doesn't have to. That's not really needed. Because he's just talked about the mercies of God for 11 chapters. And it's almost as if Paul, trying to get to the imperatives, trying to get to how the gospel changes our life, it's like he can't get past grace. Like one more reminder that this is not you. This is not you fixing your life. This is about what God has already done and living in light of what he's already done and the love that you cannot lose. That the Christian life, the posture of a Christian is always by the mercies of God. By the mercy of God I have breath today. By the mercy of God, we gather as His people in this place. By the mercy of God, I have my family. By the mercy of God, we eat and drink. By the mercy of God, we may see tomorrow. By the mercy of God, every day on this side of hell is pure grace. And so what I think Paul is doing as he sets us up for all these imperatives, he roots us deeper and deeper in the unmerited, unearned love of God. Because here's how gospel change really takes place. In our own weakness and need for Jesus. And this makes us truly uncomfortable. Because for me to change, my automatic assumption is I have to do it. I have to take myself up on my own bootstraps. I have to work at it. I have to do it. We always want to put imperative before indicative, but that's not the grammar of the gospel. We actually have to begin with our weakness and our need, and that's deeply uncomfortable. Uh, Some of you saw me this summer. I um, had a running injury and broke my leg, and I had crutches for um, almost 10 weeks. And you might have seen me around the church with crutches. It was a really sad picture, uh, because when I broke my leg, we had a two-month-old son, and our daughter is, is four years old. And so the timing was not great. And so for 10 weeks this summer, I couldn't put any weight on my right leg. I, uh, I wasn't supposed to drive. Um, 
I could not carry anything on my own. My office is upstairs. I could not get upstairs. I had to get my wife to go get books for me and bring them down. Um, I had to ask my four-year-old daughter to carry things for me because she's faster than me. I had to ask some of you to bring dinner to our house because we were drowning and just couldn't make it. I had to ask one of my friends to mow my yard. Uh, When I showed up to restaurants, old ladies would hold the door open for me. (laughs) 30 years old. It was 10 weeks of me being so uncomfortable because I had to ask people to do things for me. And in other words, I had to like lean in and know with every step that I tried to take that I am weak and incapable of doing anything. And I actually think it was one of the best seasons of spiritual growth, even though I never want to do that again. Because true change, true heart change cannot take place if we don't first go and throw ourselves over the throne room of grace to say, I can't do anything about my anger. I can't do anything about my anxiety. I can't do anything about my sin. But by the mercies of God, there's hope. How do we today, you yourself, how do you need to acknowledge need and weakness before Jesus? Because we need the gospel today as much as we needed the gospel the day we were converted. Where do we need to admit weakness? Where do we need to give up? And where do we need to rely on grace? Gospel change is all about grace. It's where it begins and where it ends. But secondly, it encompasses all of life. It encompasses all of life. Paul goes on to say, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we get to the first imperative of this second part of Romans. And we all want imperatives, right? We all want to be told what to do. Paul, just tell us what to do. Tell us what it means to be a good Christian. Tell me. Give me something tangible to do. And what we really want this verse to say is present your sacrifices to God. And here they are. Give 10% of your money. Give your time to the church and ministry. Give up this portion of your life. Don't do this. Don't do that. Sacrifice in these ways. But Paul here does not tell us to bring sacrifices to God. He doesn't tell us to make sacrifices. He tells us to be a sacrifice. With our bodies. Present your bodies. The outward manifestation of who you are in this world. Every interaction you have with this world. With another person. What goes into your body. What goes out of your body. What you say. Every conversation. Everything that you do. From picking up trash to changing a diaper. To doing your work. Whatever it might be. All of it, he says, is to be presented to God as a sacrifice. And actually what I think Paul has in mind, as one commentator said, is... What Leviticus described as a whole burnt offering, which is a sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system that's brought to God, pleasing to Him, and it's utterly consumed in fire. All of it. What Paul is saying here is, here's what Jesus wants from you. All of you. All of you. Every part of you. To be yielded up to Him in thanksgiving. To be given up to Him. To say, this is not mine, Jesus, but it's yours. And that is crazy hard. And I'm actually hesitant to say this because I know this is a congregation that has a lot going on. And we're all very tired. And this isn't asking for a little bit. This is asking for all of you. How does Jesus do this? How is this an okay thing to ask for? Well, we have to see. 
That Jesus does not ask of us anything that He hasn't already done for us. Because when Paul says to be a living sacrifice, that means it's only empowered by Christ being our dying sacrifice. That we are made alive by His ultimate sacrifice, His ultimate giving up of Himself. The fullness of God dwelt in man, giving Himself, all Himself to His people. God became man to die on the cross for our sins, to raise again to new life, and to ascend to heaven, sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us. Jesus has given all of Himself to us. And so when He looks at your life, He's not just concerned about like a couple things. He doesn't just care for a few parts about you. He wants all of you. And that's actually, I'm going to make this a little bit better, that's actually good news. Because what Paul says is what this is, living as sacrifices, is spiritual worship. And another translation could be reasonable worship or true worship. That what it means to live as a sacrifice, to hold everything in our hand, our jobs and our houses and our family, yielding them up to King Jesus... What that means is that that's the life that we were made to live. That's the way we were made to live. We were never made to live our lives for ourselves. Because if you really think about it, everyone's sacrificing for something. All of us are sacrificing our lives and our bodies for something. Some of us are killing ourselves for our jobs. Sacrificing ourselves even for our comfort. For relationships, for our families, and some of those are those are great things. But true worship and true living as a sacrifice is to sacrifice yourself to the good master, the king who gave himself for his people. And we can only begin to do that slowly if we see that he's worthy of our sacrifices. One of my favorite things about being a campus minister is um, is seeing our students get engaged and married. And um, I love to see that because of the transformation that all of a sudden takes place in 22-year-old guys when they realize they have to get their lives together. And guys who uh, don't wash their clothes, sleep in, may go to class, may not, living the total college lifestyle, all of a sudden realize they're dating the girl that they want to spend the rest of their lives with. And what happens? It happens pretty instantly. They know they have to go get a job. And they know they have to get money. And they sacrifice their Friday and Saturday nights. They sacrifice their social life in order to go work to collect money. And then they have to go do the hardest thing of all, which is to go talk to her dad. And tuck in their shirt and shave their face and have an adult conversation from a very scary person. And they have to get a yes from that. And then they take all that money that they've sacrificed for and then go to a jewelry store that they've never been in before in their life. And to give that money away for this thing that they don't really care about. In order to orchestrate this proposal, do y'all know what proposals are like nowadays? They're like productions, right? Photographers, parties, all of it. And these guys plan this from scratch. And it all works out, and then he gets in the most vulnerable position, which is on his knee, asking the question, will you marry me to this girl? That's a lot of sacrifice. Especially from guys who are usually apathetic, but why does he do it? Because he found something of infinite more value than anything that he's given up. He is fine with what he just did. Actually, he loved what he just did. Because he found something greater. 
What it means to live as a living sacrifice is not this sort of begrudging, okay, I need to hurt for Jesus today. But actually, it's finding Jesus more and more wonderful, more and more beautiful, and yielding our entire life to Him. What part of our life do we need to yield to Jesus even today? Sinclair Ferguson was my pastor for a while in college, and he used to say this a lot, that God is always poking and prodding in your heart. And he doesn't do it to hurt you. But he's looking for the sore spots. He's looking for the parts that you have not given up yet. And when he pokes at it, you'll say, Jesus, you can have everything but not that. Not that. What is that for us? Is it our family? Which is a great thing. But are we willing to hold them in our hands and say, Jesus, whatever you want, whatever you are asking of us, we will do it. Even if it doesn't look like our plan. Does it look like relationships in your life? Like that kind of hard neighbor to talk to, but you know is very lonely and needs friends? What would it look like to put that relationship in your hand and say, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll sacrifice for this. How can we be living sacrifices for Jesus? Gospel change encompasses all of life. Not just a part of it, not just a little bit, all of it. But lastly... This happens slowly. This happens slowly. It is a deep and slow work to see gospel change in our hearts. The second verse here that Paul says gives us uh, two uh, uh, statements about what gospel change looks like. And he actually is getting deeper and deeper into us as he goes. Starting with the grace of God. Then going to our bodies and how we use our bodies in this world. Everything that we do. But now he goes to the mind, to the will, to the desires. And he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. It's a negative and a positive, but both of them are passive. Did you notice that? Both of them are happening to us, in other words. That everyone on this world is either looking more and more like the world or they're looking more and more like Jesus. And that is an outside force happening upon us. Do not be conformed. He doesn't say stop conforming yourself. He said stop being conformed. And we all know what being conformed to the world feels like. We all feel the pressure of conformity. To being obsessed with temporal things, earthly things in the here and now. To being obsessed with the standard that, that, that people put upon us that we have to live up to. Of thinking about ourselves and our comfort and that is the ultimate goal and ultimate aim but it's always just, just far enough out of our reach that we can never have it. Of thinking less and less of spiritual things like sin and righteousness and thinking more and more about things that are directly in front of us. We feel that pressure. And if we do not look at our lives we will be conformed to this world more and more. We will look more like this world. But Paul says there is another way. There is another force acting upon people. And it's, it's transforming us. That we can be transformed. But this is where like Paul gets a little confusing because the grammar here is kind of hard. Because these are both passive imperatives. Which is weird. Because an imperative is asking you to do something. But passive happens to you. So Paul, like, how do we do something that's happening to us? Well, he tells us that this transformation takes place by the renewal of our minds. 
And what does renewing of our minds look like? It actually looks like dwelling in a world full of lies, but giving ourselves over to the Word of God that's true. Our minds are renewed by the Scriptures, by God's Holy Word, by His Spirit. That Why we come here today and why we come here every week, why we sing the Bible and pray the Bible and go to the table with both Word and Sacrament and why we open the Bible and read it and preach it is to renew our minds together. That the lies and voices that we listen to out in the world are not true, but this is God's voice and God's Word that reorients who we are and that we remember who He is and what He's doing. And what mind renewal looks like is slowly and slowly and slowly having our will look more and more like God's will. Our desires look more and more like God's desires. Because being transformed is a stronger word than being conformed. Conformed means you're sort of molded and shaped. Transformed is a supernatural thing that happens. Where you are being made a new person, thinking differently, desiring differently, wanting differently. But this is a process that happens so slow. Sanctification happens so much slower than we want it to. But that's because God is not satisfied with superficial change. He wants deep heart change. What does it mean to be renewed in the mind? What might it look like? I had a professor tell this story. In seminary, he was a PhD student in Scotland, and he worked for a small church. And in this church, there was a woman who was very faithful and very devout and very sweet. And she came to church every week without her husband. And her husband was not a Christian. He was a farmer. And he was known by everyone to be a very angry man, a very harsh man. And so the church had this sort of evangelistic event where the woman brought her husband. He finally came. And, and there he was converted. Like he heard the gospel. And his heart came alive. And he started coming to church. He was baptized into the church. And he started reading his Bible and started praying and started trying to figure out what it means to live the Christian life. And months and months went by and he came home from work one day and sort of slammed the door behind him. And his wife asked, like, how was your day? And he said, it was terrible. I was angry from the moment that I got up. And from the moment I got home, I yelled at people who messed up. I was mad at myself. I was somehow mad at you. I was mad at our kids. I was mad at life. I was just angry and fuming all day. And I don't know what Christianity is about, but I don't think it's working. Because I think I'm madder today than I was before. And his wife smiles. And says, I have seen you come home every day of our marriage angry. But I've never seen you come home upset that you were angry. I've never even seen you notice that you were angry. Maybe that's Jesus. What renewing of our minds looks like is not like massive changes where everything falls into place. But sometimes what it looks like is being sensitive to our sin or before we never thought about it. And I hope this is encouraging to you. Like, if you look at your life, you might not be where you want to be. And I'm not excusing that. I'm not excusing sin. I'm not excusing patterns that you need to get out of. But but I hope this is encouraging. If you look at your life in your heart, and maybe you see that now you're bothered by that sin pattern where before you never thought of it, that's the Spirit renewing your mind through His Word. That's not you. And, And maybe there's a person in your life that you've never thought about twice. But all of a sudden, your heart kind of like feels for them. And you're even tempted to reach out to them. Like, that's not you. 
That's the Spirit renewing your mind. Making you and molding you into who God would have you be. Maybe you've never thought twice about evangelism before. Maybe you've never really had a heart for mission, but lately you just you see that person in your life that doesn't know Jesus and you and that kind of hurts you. Like that's not you. That can't be you. That's the Spirit of God renewing your mind. And it happens so slowly. And especially for many of us who are overwhelmed with family life and responsibility. And we're not in the Bible as much as we want to be in the Bible. And you're doing your best just to get to church before the sermon starts, right? God is faithful in renewing your mind through His Word. He is more powerful than you can imagine. And so, it is an honor to be a part of this church. As we, we are renewed in mind, body, and soul together by the Holy Spirit slowly. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But take hope and do not be discouraged. The Spirit of God is in you. And He who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's just going to be slow. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be painful. I want Jesus sometimes to work in my life like a back massage. And most of the time Jesus works in my life like open heart surgery without anesthesia. Because He wants me to change from the inside out, fully, holy, and one day, someday, He will present me as perfect. Take hope. The Spirit of God is in us. And if you're not a Christian, I want to ask, where do you look for change in your life? Because all of us want change. All of us want better marriages. All of us want a better life. All of us want to stop things and start things. But if we are not looking for deep change in the Spirit and the One that who made us, where are we looking to change us? And is it enough? Look to Jesus. Let me pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. That even though it calls us to do very hard things, like be living sacrifices. Sacrificing parts of our life that we want to hold on to desperately. Giving ourselves over to You and to the people around us. And that's hard work. And it hurts but we know it's good. That you are not against us, but you are for us. And you are doing a good, good work deep inside our hearts. And so, Lord, let us see your work. Let us see the fingerprints of your grace upon our souls. And let us experience true gospel change the way you do it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.